Welcome to the Open Doors Live podcast, your window into what following Jesus looks like in some of the darkest places in the world. I'm your host, Jordan, and together we'll meet the persecuted church, gritty, courageous, passionate followers of Jesus from around the globe. We hope these stories remind you that God is doing wild and wonderful things around the world and that you can be a part of it. Hello, Open Doors Live podcasters. My name is Jordan. It is so lovely to be with you for our first Open Doors Live podcast of 2023. I cannot believe how fast this year is going. I feel like I'm hearing everyone say it. This year is just absolutely flying by. But here we are. It's March. It's our first Open Doors Live podcast for the year. And I have some incredible things lined up for the podcast this year. We're going to have some uh, deep impactful conversations with some very brave followers of Jesus from all around the world. We're going to get some experts into persecution. We're going to hear from uh, some people who have studied persecution trends uh, all around the world. And I'm just so excited to be sharing some of these stories with you and to be going on the journey with you this year. And this episode is a particularly special one. It's very close to my heart. Uh, We're going to do a deep dive into Syria and what following Jesus looks like in Syria, especially Uh, In the wake of these recent earthquakes, I've had an incredible conversation with one of our partners on the ground. Her name's Alayla. I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. She is just full of wisdom and uh, I just loved having that conversation. So I'm really excited to share it with you. Our heart at Open Doors is to strengthen what remains in some of the most difficult parts of the world. Uh, And there are some places in the world where the population of Christians is slowly dwindling because of persecution. And uh, one of those places is Syria. Syria is our focus country for this week's podcast. And we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into what following Jesus looks like in Syria, especially in the wake of the terrible earthquakes that have uh, recently just ravished parts of uh, southern Turkey and northern Syria. Now, what is life like for Christians in Syria? Uh, I heard a statistic just today that there used to be about 200,000 Christians in Syria. Now that number um, seems to have dwindled to about 30,000 in the, the, the capital city of Aleppo. So um, the, the number of Christians is dwindling uh, in, in that city. And uh, I think that speaks to the general trend that we're seeing in Syria as a whole. It's becoming harder and harder for Syrian Christians to remain in Syria um, because of the the levels of persecution that they face. And uh, just today I was hearing about um, uh, people, Christians who live in Syria who are, aren't actually able to uh, get jobs in the field of work that they have trained for, not because there aren't jobs available, but because the level of discrimination against them is so great that they actually aren't able to um, they, they aren't able to get jobs in the area that they are trained for. So they're engineers that are out of work simply because they're Christians. And I can't fathom that level of discrimination. Um, but it's, so, so the discrimination that they face is at a, 
an economic level, it's at a social level, um, it's at a governmental level, and then they face um, targeted kidnappings and attacks as well, um, to, which is designed to intimidate the Christian community. So uh, it is an incredible difficult place to follow Jesus. It is the 12th most difficult place to follow Jesus according to our world watch list. So um, so Syria is number 12 on our, on our world watch list, which is our index of the most difficult places in the world to follow Jesus. And the morale, the level of, um, uh, of energy is low at the moment in Syria in the wake of these earthquakes and uh, I was able to chat to one of our local pastors who uh, is on the ground in Aleppo in Syria and uh, her name is Layla and she was able to give me some insight into what it is actually like to follow Jesus in Syria right now, uh, not um, uh, n- not ignoring the devastation of the earthquake but also the 11 years of civil war that they faced before that uh, and how that's just ravaged this very fragile community. So. Uh, stay tuned and hear Layla's uh, interview um, from Aleppo. It's been four weeks now since the earthquake that decimated parts of southern Turkey and northern Syria, and the world just watched in horror as buildings collapsed, people were trapped under the rubble, and there was a race against time to dig these multitudes out of the rubble as the death toll climbed. And to focus in specifically on Syria, this disaster comes after 11 years of civil war and unrest. And after the social, economic and political toll of the last decade, Syria was not in a robust position to be able to respond internally to this disaster. And to make matters worse, there's only one UN-approved international border crossing into Syria, and that is the Turkey-Syria border. And that was initially impassable due to earthquake damage, meaning that international aid was actually unable to get to the affected parts of northern Syria for quite some time. But Open Doors has been working in this area of northern Syria through our local partners for many years now, helping the church to respond to the short-term and long-term issues that have sprung from this extended civil war. These networks of aid that Open Doors partners have established meant that they were on the forefronts of this response to the disaster. When international aid was unable to get into the region, our partners who were already on the ground in northern Syria were there responding. And we have a very special guest with us here on today's podcast. She's an Open Doors uh, local partner in Aleppo. Um, She's an an aid worker who's in the region in northern Syria. Her name is Leila Samar, and she is going to be sharing with us a little bit about what it's like one month on from this disaster and how the church is responding and how Open Doors local partners are focusing on this next stretch of healing, which is uh, which is ahead of us. So, Leila, thank you so much for joining us today from Aleppo. Thank you for having me with you today. It's been almost one month now since the 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit Turkey and Syria. You're in Aleppo, Syria, as we speak. Leila, can you paint a picture for us of what life looks like four weeks on from this disaster? It's very hard to really paint a picture. I mean, in some way, life is gradually returning, at least from what it looks from the outside. But really, people are returning back to their homes knowing that it is not safe for them to return. 
uh, and not everybody actually. Um, until a few days ago, people were still sleeping in their cars. Um, one of the many sad scenes I have seen uh, recently isn't just the destruction site. It's the fact that demolishing activities are still happening in front of people's own eyes. Because simply, you know, their homes are not uh, safe and they are too damaged to be inhabited again. Like you said, you know, Aleppo uh, has gone through a decade long of war, but to start actually, I mean, let's not, let's not forget that Aleppo as a city is one of the oldest cities in the world. So the buildings are old. On top of that is the war. Uh, and that made all the buildings already unsafe for them to be living in. Um, like I said, some took the risk of returning, but you know, as you walk through the city, the, the, as you walk through the streets of the city, you can very clearly see the piles of rubbles kind of swiped and collected, you know, uh, on the sides of the streets. You know, it's just a living reminder every single uh, hour of the day that this happened here. And um, it cannot go unnoticed, even though people are trying to resume their life normally. Wow, you're right. There's just reminders everywhere because the buildings are still absolutely in tatters. And I can imagine that many people in the community would have initially gone into shock as they dealt with the initial destruction and then the many aftershocks that came uh, after that first initial one. Are people starting to process what happened now? And, and how are people starting to work through the trauma of this disaster? Um, it's it's really hard to say uh, collectively what happened and how people are processing this. The people I have talked to uh, are really trying to put on a smile, a fake smile or a normal smile. You wouldn't know, really. Um, most of them are grateful they're still alive. And uh, everyone here... Uh, when they meet each other for the first time since the earthquake, they greet each other by saying in Arabic, alhamdulillah, salami, meaning, thank God you're safe, right? Uh, just, you know, this is the first thing they would say to each other. Uh, when I meet a person for the first time, this is what I hear. But I feel that some are still living in a kind of a, so I'm not a psychiatrist, but you can obviously see they are, a, they are in a denial mode, you know? Others are just, you know, survival mode. I want to buy this. I want to fix that. Others are in a more helping mode, right? As in trying to help others uh, fix their home or get the food or get the transportation. Some are in an angry mode. Um, they're still not accepting what happened. Some are in the kind of the opposite mode, you know, the giving in mode. They don't care, you know, they just gave in. And... One thing is for sure, however, is that the life for Syrians after the earthquake is not the same as before the earthquake. I heard this sentence many times now. Uh, yeah, like you said, they've gone through the war. They've gone through economic crisis and all of that. It still is. The economic crisis is still here. I mean, people, the money, the currency is devaluated. Not everything is available, but it has always been the case that the homes of people have been a safe haven for them before the earthquake, and that is no longer the case. And 
you feel like, you know, their only place of comfort, their only place where they used to go for peace has been robbed from them. So it's now at risk. And yeah, everybody, you know, in the Middle Eastern culture, having a home is very important. You know, we are raised as children growing up. You know, you need to buy your home, marry, settle down maybe, you know. But owning your own place is very important. It's part of the ownership of your country even. And so they are robbed of that. And yeah, it, it, it's coming, it's hitting their core of their existence even. Wow, even just the the weight of losing your home, your sanctuary, your safe place, uh, the mm-hmm. place where you spend time with God and with your family and and pray and have people around your table. <coughs> and the, the levels of grief there are, are immense. Um, now, you visited some of local partners, Open Doors local partners in the city of Aleppo. What are you seeing as the current focus in the recovery effort? And how are you seeing the church live as a light in this really devastating moment for Syria? So, um, I mean, as a member of the local partners, I've seen that to start with, the church has been there since the very first hours of the earthquake, since the first 24 hours even. And um, we, we, we've kind of recently finalized the assessment that showed the next step for us. Uh, And now we're moving kind of from the immediate basic relief assistance, you know, like food and providing a shelter with a warm space for them uh, into actually what we call rehabilitation and restoration of the houses, uh, especially those who have been damaged and destroyed, uh, either partly or totally. Uh, And we, as an organization here, we are part of a coalition, so we're not working alone in this, a part of, and we're reaching out to 11 uh, church denominations. So we work with all Christian denominations. Uh, And yeah, together we're helping around 2,600 houses. So that's our target to reach uh, in either totally restoring the house or rehabilitating it for people to be able to feel safe to go back to their houses. Of course, mechanisms are still in place to do that in the sense that we want people to keep their dignity uh, while doing this. So it could be that they need to fix it or with our help and our monitoring with uh, the experts and the engineers uh, walking with them this journey to fix their house. Uh, But it's definitely not imposing anything on them. That is incredible. So physically helping people to rebuild their homes. I remember when Open Doors local partners were doing that in Iraq um, after many uh, were had to leave Iraq because of the, the impact of Islamic State in Iraq in places like Karakosh. And, and when they returned, everything was mm-hmm. bare. And so they were having to rebuild. And so that's that that physical rebuilding of people's homes actually gives them the space that they need to be able to rebuild emotionally. Um, And what a beautiful extension of the care and love of Jesus to people that you're investing into rebuilding people's homes. That's just incredible. Um, (laughs) Such a beautiful um, display of of Christ's love uh, to people. That's a lot of houses too, 2,600. 
Um, now, we know that our partners have been helping victims and their families through centres of hope across the Middle mm -hmm. East. Can you tell us a little bit more about what a centre of hope is, uh, the role it plays in the community, and in particular in response to this disaster? Um, the the concept of the center of hope, just in brief, you know, it's the fact that the the local church uh, is the hope, have, or, or rather has the hope in its center. It's it's really very simple. So wherever uh, there's a church, there's a center of hope, and the aim of it is really to equip Christians, uh, not only spiritually, uh, but also for for the Christians to become empowered on a psychological level, on an economical level, on an emotional level even. And this is really needed in countries like Syria, where the living conditions are very harsh. And most importantly, is to give them a renewed hope. That's why we call it a center of hope as well. Um, so just in summary, it's kind of a physical space. It could be within the church or a space available by the church where Christians can reach out to each other. To each other. Um, and this disaster, specifically, the center of hope really played a leading role. Um, like I said earlier, in the very first hours of the earthquake, we opened the doors to receiving all the people. Obviously, the first people that came were the people who know of the center of hope. So those are the members of the church, you know, the Christians, member of the church. Um, and yeah, those found, I mean, those people found a warm room. They found uh, uh, somebody who opened their arms for them, you know, whether the church leader or an active church member who opened uh, the room for them. It's It's been really amazing to see this. And later on, you know, it was everyone seeking shelter who was welcomed at the Center of Hope without any discrimination. That was really needed because you know, February nights were really cold in Aleppo. I mean, I've I've felt minus, not felt, I mean, it was minus five degrees in some nights. That's cold, even on any international standards. And uh, yeah, so a warm room, a meal, and uh, somebody to talk to was among the critical uh, assistance that the people needed at the beginning. So beautiful to see that. Um that generosity of heart that comes in in a moment where, you know, the temptation would be to just take care of yourself and and your own family to then um, turn around. And, and I read um, that there was a pastor who was sleeping in a chair and just waiting for people to come in and greet them That's and make sure they had yes. what they needed. Yeah, absolutely. It's just Pastor Abdullah was sleeping in the room next to me. Yeah, on the floor. Pastor <laughs> on the That's chair. Right. Yeah. 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 And just people going out, picking people up, knocking on car doors, saying, please come in, um, you know, come in and make sure that you, you you get what you need. Don't freeze in this in this um very cold winter. So I just I just feel like it's a mark of someone who is secure in Christ that when something like this happens, they can turn around mm. and reach out with warm hearts and, and you know, with this generosity of spirit that says, I'll, I'll take care of you too. Um, it's just absolutely stunning. Uh, everything that you've just shared is absolutely stunning. Now, 
I remember early on you shared that people were mm. kind of asking, why has this happened? Why after mm. so many years of civil war, instability mm. and poverty, uh, why did this disaster come and, and devastate this very vulnerable community? And and I, I'm sure asking that, how has a Christian community responded to these types of questions? Mm. It's really, there's no there's no one answer to uh, this question. It's uh, it's really hard and it's a personal one. Um, yeah, and and some are still asking this question: uh, why why this is happening? What I can tell you is, if you allow me to share, you know, yesterday I talked to Julie, um, who when I asked her this question, actually I asked her, you know, about the meaning of what happened. Uh, to her, of course, and she was listing the events itself of what happened to her. And when I asked her about the meaning, her answer was, you know, simply God wanted me to go out of the safe walls of my home and and, and, and the walls of the church. God wanted me to reach out to other people. And she told me that she went from the first 48 hours of total fear to then calmness, to a huge fire ignited in her uh, to to help others, and especially the families of the, uh, I think she said 155 children, of which she's in charge of in the Sunday school. So she reached out to those children and their families. And in her own words, she said, you know, I was given five breads and two fish, and I put them in the hands of God for him to bless. She's such an inspiration in what she's doing and in, in how she turned this crisis into a blessing uh, for her own family, but also for the others. And that's that's kind of what you see. It's a common story you see among Christians of how they were able to use this crisis to something bigger and not only drown in the mourning and in the uh, destruction uh, 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 mode that they are uh, that they are in. That is an incredible story. Um, yeah. And oh my gosh, so inspiring. I, yeah, man, what a, what a beautiful response. Um, and someone who's clearly just absolutely filled with the love of God. Um, now the Christian community is a minority in Syria. Uh, do you feel like persecution has taken a backseat during this disaster or is there still evidence in discrimination in the way that things are, are playing out in, in Aleppo at the moment? Mm. Christians in Syria have always faced an existential uh, battle. It's an existential threat. And when I say existential, I mean, you know, you either belong to a country or you don't. Uh in the eyes of their co-citizens, you know, the co-citizens of the Christians here, or even in the eyes of the government, maybe Christians are considered they are not vulnerable. Uh, and in the past, up until today, Christians have been excluded from the international assistance. And that was one of the reasons why the church has to step up in that sense. Uh, you know, I've heard people here talk about a qualitative privilege. You know, Christians are educated. Yeah, but they're not finding a job, you know, or they are misemployed. So you see an engineer working in a, such a low-paid job, not in what they 
are meant to be working in. Of course, they want to stay in their country, but they cannot really make ends meet. So they have to leave. I'm not going to tell you that every single Christian I talk to want to leave, but the vast majority to really be on the safe side here, the vast majority wants to leave Syria. And that's simply very sad. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is this is what we mean by existential a threat to the Christians. Part of our heart and our mission is to strengthen what remains uh, mm-hmm. of the body of Christ in in some of the darkest places in the world and some of the hardest places to be a Christian. Uh, Syria is on that list of the hardest places to be a Christian. What does long-term recovery look like for um, the the church uh, and the people that they are helping in Syria? And and what does it look like to strengthen what remains in this region? It means that we need to keep walking the journey along the church here to empower the church. Uh, But also as part of our new activities that we will be implementing is trauma healing. We talked about the trauma earlier, uh, but it is, you know, looking at the community and talking to people here and even talking to my colleagues who are leading the work here, they told me about the need for trauma activities. And that would be part of the long-term projects that we will be implementing. So yes, we will be restoring and rehabilitating houses on the midterm and on the long term, but this is not enough if it is not coupled with the trauma healing activities that we will be um, implementing as well. So definitely on our radar. <laughs> yeah, and I know that um, trauma care and that um, psychological help has been a, a central part of the work of Centres of Hope across the Middle East for many years now and um, all the more in, in response to this earthquake. When people give to Centres of Hope, when the Aussies and the New Zealanders who are listening to this podcast give to Centres of Hope, uh, how will their funds be used? Um, what does it look like to partner with Centres of Hope and, and how can we see um, those that support playing out in uh, in Aleppo? You know, at the, at the intro of your podcast, you mentioned how aid is being... Uh, transferred to Syria. So it is not the easiest. It is a challenging form of uh, of helping. What makes us very unique is the fact that we have been present all along since the beginning, not even before the earthquake, during the war. And being present here means that we are already aware of how to help people. We already have our uh, mechanism our network with the church um, to do so. And that gives us um, lots of uh, push to continue doing so. When the Aussies or, like you said, or the New Zealanders are helping organizations like yours, like Open Doors, and you guys are helping us, you can rest assured that uh, this money is going straight to the people who are affected in the sense that Uh, we already have 
projects in place that is feeding people that will guarantee that they will have a restored house to go back to. Uh, this is not a parachuted project on them. Our colleagues already live here. They know the need of the people. They are present next to the church leaders. They go to the same churches and the rest of the Christians. They are part of this community. So that makes us really uh, part of the midterm and the long-term um, work for the, for the church in Syria. Wow, it just it is just a huge work and it's a huge cost to all of you who are laying down your lives right now to um, help and support people who have been affected. So how can we pray for you and, and for your team and uh, for those who are must be absolutely exhausted right now um, under the weight of of um, this burden that, that you have been walking through the last four weeks? Well, you simply touched on it now. You know, we need, we really need to pray for the staff. They are emotionally stressed and they are physically tired. Um, and this is not a, this is not a sprint, right? Like they say, it's a marathon. This is a long-term thing, at least a year long of, um, of work. So, Already the staff are tired, but they're still working around the clock. So we need to pray for strength, for peace, for rest, for uh, their emotional healing as well. Uh, the wife of one of the colleagues, I was talking to her, and she said she's still having nightmares till now, waking up at the same hour of the night. So we need to pray for them to find peace as well. And for the leaders, whether in our organization or in the church, to have the right wisdom to keep, to, to know how to deal with this is such a, a complicated response. So they definitely need the wisdom in their work. Thank you so much for sharing those, those points for prayer. I can imagine um, the exhaustion and the trauma that our workers are going to have to deal through, our local partners are going to have to process on top of then the trauma that the people that they're helping are experiencing. It's, um, it's a huge work and uh, we know that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard hearts and minds. And so um, for those who are listening right now, uh, when you pray, um, bring before this incredible team who are laboring right now, uh, on the front lines of an absolute uh, humanitarian crisis and disaster and uh, pray, pray that um, they would experience that peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. Uh, pray that they would receive supernatural energy and empowerment to just keep on going uh, and and pray that their burden would be light even though um, the burden would it is is a is a heavy burden in the natural. Um, Jesus says, "Come to me, and I'll give you rest." So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, be praying for for rest for this supernatural rest that only God can give. Layla, it has been incredible to speak to you. Um, your heart for people is astounding, and it's an absolute honor to partner with people like you on the ground in Aleppo and. Uh, it reminds me why we do what we do here uh, at mm -hmm. Open Doors Australia, New Zealand. It reminds me that um, 
whenever we talk about these things, when we talk about the pain and the the suffering that many Christians go through, um, that there are real people on the other side of this, that for the 360 million Christians that suffer for their faith, uh, there's there's the one person behind that. There's the Julies. There's um, there's the the individual who is um, processing their own pain with God and walking out their own journey. So thank you so much for spending time with us uh, on today's podcast and uh, for your insight into what's going on. And um, yeah, we we are so grateful for the work that you're doing in Aleppo. And I, you know, also thank you for uh, keeping the Syrians in the heart of your work and in the heart of your prayer. We definitely need it. Um, and thank you for having me as well. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed listening to Layla's reflections as much as I did. And uh, if you like me, you just cannot imagine what these Syrian believers have been through after 11 years of civil war and now a devastating earthquake. I can't imagine looking around and just seeing destroyed buildings everywhere outside my window. Uh, So, yeah, it's been absolutely incredible to hear from Layla and just be reminded of the reality of what uh, following Jesus looks like in places like Syria, but also the incredible invitation that they are taking up to be the hands and feet of Jesus uh, in such a terrible environment with so much heartbreak all around them. They are taking up the mantle and living as salt and light uh, in in Aleppo, uh, in Syria, which is the 12th most dangerous place in the world to follow Jesus. So I pray that today uh, was an encouragement to you to look around you, to look at the heartache around you, to look at the, the heartbreak that the people around you might be facing and what it means to to meet the needs of your community, what it means to live as salt and light in your environment and to bring that light and hope of Jesus into your day-to-day. That is one of the most incredible things about the persecuted church is that they're incredible spiritual mentors to us. And I feel like Layla has taught me so much about just lifting my eyes and looking around about how to meet the needs of those in my world. So it's been absolutely wonderful to be with you and we hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of the Open Doors Live podcast and I'm really looking forward to being with you next month. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast, your window into what following Jesus looks like in some of the darkest places in the world. Next month, we'll hear from an expert in persecution in sub-Saharan Africa, which includes countries like Nigeria, Burkina Faso, and Niger. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information on our work, head over to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz.